Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are in an ongoing study through the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter of the Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul. And this morning we come to the second half of chapter 11. First Corinthians 11, verse 20, or verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 17 through 34. Verse 17 through 34. Please give your full attention. This is God's word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other, the other things, I will give directions when I come. Have you ever thought about why it is that every time we want to celebrate something, we have to have a meal with it? Birthday meals, anniversary dinners, weddings with receptions, funerals with receptions, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter. Anytime we celebrate, we've got to have a meal. There's something about that. I think it's something that speaks not only to our nature, but to the imprint of the fingerprints of God upon us. That somehow he has made that association that's almost instinctual for us. And a matter of fact, if you go through scripture, and I'm going to take a moment here and be patient with me, because I want to do kind of a real quick survey of scripture from beginning to end to show you that feasting with each other and feasting with the Lord is one of the most common pictures or metaphors used in Scripture for salvation. 
It's not insignificant. Think about it. Go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. It's not insignificant that the very first sin that occurred in the whole creation was a sin that involved eating. It was people made in the image of God that refused to feast with God but chose to feast with the serpent. That's how sin got started. Think about the Israelites formed to be the covenant people of God. And God instituted for them three great events that were to happen every year where people, all the Jews from all over and all who attached themselves to the God of Israel would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate. And those three events that they observed every year were the feast of the unleavened bread, which was centered around the Passover meal that they ate together before the Lord, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Even if you go back to the beginning when God established Israel as his covenant people and entered into a relationship of grace with them, remember how it started. Moses was given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And then after he received the commandments, he went to the foot of the mountain, met with the people of God, and he took the blood of the sacrifices, which represented the core of the gospel, substitutionary atonement. He took the blood of the sacrifices, he sprinkled it upon the law, and he sprinkled it upon the people. And then, and maybe you've never noticed this before, but after that bloody ceremony, what they did is they had a feast. It's described in Exodus 24. Let me just read to you what happened after the covenant was established through the blood. It says in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They, the whole covenant relationship between God and his people was established around a feast that was made possible by the shedding of the blood of the sacrifices. The imagery of feasting continues all through scripture as God tries to illustrate what it means to be saved and to be redeemed and to be brought into a relationship with him as his people. Earlier, we read from Psalm 23, verse 5, where it says, "You of the Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Over in Proverbs chapter 9, wisdom is personified in that beginning portion of the book of Proverbs. And in chapter 9, it talks about wisdom preparing a great feast and inviting all who come in faith in the Lord to come to the feast. Wisdom has built her house, it says. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has set out her young women to call from the high places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Another very similar but very familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 25. Beginning in verse 6, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Again, it's all in the imagery of feasting with each other, and ultimately with the Lord. Isaiah 55, we read as uh, uh, Pastor uh, Smith read as our call to worship this morning. Come, buy, and eat without money. Come empty-handed, and you can feed upon the richest of fare. You can have your deepest needs satisfied. Again, a gospel offer from Isaiah that's given in the terms of feasting, an invitation to a great feast with each other and with the Lord. Think about the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times did he illustrate what the kingdom of God was like by comparing it to a feast? The prodigal son, when he turned from his sin and returned to his father, he was welcomed to a great feast. Jesus told about a wealthy man who prepared this great feast and sent out the invitation to all of the the, the great people of the land, and they rejected his invitation. And so he turned and gave that invitation to the poor, the outcast, the needy. Or Jesus talked about the, the wedding feast and the foolish virgins who did not prepare and were shut out of the feast because they were not prepared to greet the bridegroom. And remember what Jesus said to the Roman centurion when he put his faith in Christ. Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You get the point. The kingdom of heaven is like this great feast where those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will be received openly without any cost to come to the table to feast with each other and with the Lord. Even to the last book of the New Testament, last book of the Bible, Revelation, Jesus says to his church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. A relationship with Christ is portrayed as sitting down and feasting with our Lord. And in the final words of Scripture, in Revelation 22, the spirit of the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Feasting together with each other and with the Lord is one of the major themes of Scripture. It's probably the most prominent picture of what salvation is all about and so the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper and that's what Paul is dealing with as we come to 1 Corinthians 11 the Lord's Supper is a vivid powerful real supernatural presentation of the meaning of the gospel of what it means to feast with our creator for all eternity with the people that he has redeemed by the blood of his only son. It's interesting to me how feasting is not only a part of just what we would consider secular cultural celebrations, but feasting is a big part of a lot of the religion of other, other types of religions, false religions in the world. Most religions have feasting as part of its rituals. And really that's what was going on in Corinth. Remember back in chapter 10, That's the first time that Paul made a reference to the Lord's Supper. It was in contrast 
to the pagan fellowship meals that were going on in the pagan temples where idols were being worshipped and false gods were having sacrifices made to them. And Paul is severely chastising some of the Corinthian Christians who were attending the fellowship meals in the pagan temples, eating of the meat that had been offered just moments ago to an idol, to a false god. They were participating in a fellowship meal in the context of idol worship. And remember how Paul had chastised them for that. Severely, severely condemned them for what they were doing. And I think about that. Remember what he said to them at the time. He said, you cannot eat at the table of the Lord, referring to the Lord's Supper, and the table of demons. Because those who make sacrifices to idols and to false gods are actually sacrificing to the evil, real, demonic powers that be in the realm beyond what we can see and touch and taste and feel. You cannot eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. But isn't it interesting that demons have a table? That Satan, that's the way he works. He takes what is true and good and beautiful and powerful and he twists it and corrupts it and turns it into something that leads people astray. Something that promises to meet those deep spiritual needs of our lives and yet leaves us empty. That's what Satan does. But the early church was given the gift by our Lord himself of the Lord's Supper. And they did it differently than we do it these days. We know from the book of Acts and what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 11, I mean, the the way he describes the Lord's Supper here wouldn't fit what we do on a typical uh, worship service when we serve the Lord's Supper. Obviously, what was going on in the early church is they combined the observing of the Lord's Supper with what they called their agape feasts. The word agape in the original Greek was the word used in the New Testament for that distinctly Christ-like love that is unconditional, that that involves sacrificing and serving others uh, and no concern for your own needs. That's the kind of love that Christ taught. And so they called their feast love feast or agape feast. And when they would bring together all their food, they probably came from their homes like we do. We call them potluck dinners or in our theological circles, pot providence dinners. But we bring together all our food and and we share and we feast together. And what they would do is they would do that, and then either sometimes, or some commentators think they actually did it as part of the feast, and some others think that it was probably done right after the feast, but they would then, somehow connected with that feast, they would observe the Lord's Supper together as an act of worship. And, you know, what the problem is, Paul says you're doing it not only wrong, but you're doing it in such a way that it's a travesty. That they were in Corinth, the church in Corinth, he's angry at them again. He's angry at them through most of this letter. But he's angry at them again because their observance of the Lord's Supper is a mockery of what the true Lord's Supper is. To the point that he says in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. He says, I don't know what it is. It has something to do with this world, but it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You're not even celebrating the Lord's Supper. Matter of fact, he says in verses 17 and 18 that their coming together was not for the better, but for the worse. Could you imagine an apostle or prophet standing before our worship service and saying, when you gather for worship, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, it's actually for your, the worse and not for the better? That you're actually doing damage to your souls? That you're actually going farther from the Lord than closer to the Lord? Could you imagine? Leon Morris, one of my favorite commentators, says the supreme condem- this is the supreme condemnation of any assembly for worship. 
And there are people all over the world that are doing things in the name of Christ that aren't really worship because they're not really understanding what it is. And it actually drives them farther from Christ and does damage to their soul instead of being something that draws them near to the Lord. Paul's angry because they have desecrated this holy meal that Christ had given to the church. He's angry. In my devotions this morning, I read from... uh, the Gospels about how Jesus went into the temple and was righteously, furiously indignant because they had turned the courts of the temples into a marketplace. And he said, this is meant to be a house of prayer, a place to draw near to God, and you're turning it into a place of greed and selfishness. And he was angry and he drove the money changers out. That's the same kind of anger that Paul has here in chapter 11 because they've turned the Lord's Supper into something that is a mockery of what the Lord intended it to be. So we need to think, as we study this text together, we need to think about what's the right way to take the Lord's Supper. I don't want Paul to be angry with us. I don't want the Lord Jesus to be angry with us. What's the right way to take the Lord's Supper that we might experience the incredible blessing that it is to the church? Well, the first point that Paul makes is that when we rightly observe the Lord's Supper, it strengthens our relationship with each other. That's a purpose of the Lord's Supper, is that our relationships with each other might be strengthened. But look at what Paul says is going on in Corinth in verse 28. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you. In the context of the Lord's Supper, there were divisions that were happening. And as you tease out from the context what kind of divisions we're doing. We know that the church in Corinth was a divided church because back in early, many chapters ago, we saw how they were divided over different leaders, over Paul and Apollos and Peter. They were divided over which leader they were allied to. But here, it's a different issue of division. This is a seriously divided church. They were also divided, as Paul says here, between the wealthy and the poor. The wealthy, as you you try to understand, and we don't have a lot of information given here, but it's pretty clear that what was going on is that the wealthy were bringing abundant food with them, rich food, stuff that other Christians couldn't couldn't afford probably. They were bringing it to the meal, and he says they weren't waiting for the poor. Now, it's not just that the poor were probably latecomers. It's not that the the poor weren't diligent in attending worship and the Lord's Supper. It's probably that the wealthy didn't have to work, but the slaves and the blue-collar workers and the low-class workers had to work long hours to live. And so they probably came late to the meal. And you know what it's like when you go to a church dinner and you get there late. All you have left is scraps. You're scraping out of the pan whatever you can get if you get there late. And we don't even have this disparity between the rich and the poor they had back then. It was unthinkable to Paul that the rich would come and eat the best stuff and and decimate the meal, and then the poor people would come, and they would be hungry. And not only were they eating the best of the food and most of the food, but he even mentions they were getting drunk at the meal. Getting drunk is a sin. And so you can understand why Paul is angry. It's just like Jesus in the court of the temple. This is a holy place. This is a holy meal. This is, you know, what's he going to do? How's he going to respond? So the first thing he does is he says, you are humiliating the poor. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, for whom Christ died, you are abusing them and humiliating them in the context of this gospel meal. It's unthinkable to Paul. He says in verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or you just, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? He's saying, if this is what you're coming to the Lord's Supper for, stay home. Because not only are you damaging the church, but you're bringing damage to yourself. You're coming together for the worse, not for the better, is what he's saying. If you're not observing the Lord's Supper the right way, if you're not coming with the right mindset and the right attitude, he says, stay home and stuff your face there. This was an agape feast, a Christ-like love feast. That's what this meal was all about. It was a place, the table of the Lord is a place where Paul tells us in Galatians 3, there is no Jew and there is no Greek. There is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no poor, and there's no rich. At the table of the Lord, we are absolutely equally sinners desperately in need of grace. There's no superiority, no inferiority at the table of the Lord. This is a covenant meal that celebrates salvation, that celebrates what the gospel is all about that we are sinners saved by grace alone, and that we are accepted to the table, we are reconciled to our creator and to our judge and to our redeemer by faith alone. We bring nothing to the table. That's what the Lord's table is about. It's a gospel table. And they were introducing divisions over earthly distinctions about worth and merit, and it was denying the gospel, and that's why Paul was angry. You see, the reason that we want to gather together and have a feast together when we celebrate great things is because God created us to be in community. We were created by a triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity past. We are made in his image. We need community. I read a lot of articles these days that this cultural generation, this generation in which we're living right now, strives for and longs for and fights for community more than anything else because that's what they are lacking. We have isolated ourselves from each other by technology and social media cannot meet the need. The Lord's Supper is what can meet the need. The Lord's Supper is what our God, our Creator, our Redeemer, and our Judge has provided to meet that need for community. It's been given to the church. It's been given to those who come by faith in Christ. And this is the only hope for the world that is desperately lonely and desperately empty and wants to be satisfied but doesn't know where to go to get it. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what Paul is saying is it's got to be about the gospel. It's got to be about who we are as God's people, equally sinners saved by grace and accepted by grace alone to the table. The second point that Paul makes is that when the way that we rightly observe the Lord's Supper, when we do it that way, when we come the way that he has called us to come, the Lord's Supper strengthens our relationship with Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting how Paul responds to the abuse. He doesn't just point out what they're doing wrong, but he points them to the solution, beginning in verse 23. And this is the part of the passage that we've heard all the time. Every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we quote this to some degree or another. Very, very familiar. But understand that it's in the context of a chastisement, of a rebuke to a church that had lost the Lord's Supper and weren't observing the Lord's Supper at all. It had turned into something that was just a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And so how does he fix it? He takes them back to the source. 
He takes them back to the theology of the Lord's Supper. He takes them back to the meaning of the Lord's Supper. He reminds them how Jesus took the unleavened bread of that Passover meal he ate the night before he went to the cross to die for our sins. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is for you. And then at the end of that Passover meal, he presented the third of four cups of wine of the Passover meal and he said to them, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And Paul is reminding these Corinthian Christians that when we receive the Lord's Supper rightly, what we receive is the Lord Jesus himself. That is the only thing that can satisfy that deep emptiness within you. That is the only thing that can feed that deep abiding hunger, that can take away that unquenchable thirst. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and that's what he offers in the supper. Now, of course, to explain the meaning of the supper, you have to explain what he means when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. And the church has been divided over this for many, many centuries. But let me just jump to the bottom line. What Jesus meant when he said, this is my body and this is my blood, is very similar to what he meant when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Or I am the door of the sheepfold. What he's saying is, What I am presenting to you is a sign and a symbol that points to reality. He was saying to his disciples, when I give you the bread and when I give you the cup, I am giving you signs that point to a spiritual reality. And so that as you consume the signs, you are also in a very real sense, in a spiritual sense, consuming the spiritual reality to which they point. And so when you receive the signs by faith, What Jesus is promising is that you also receive what those signs point to, which is himself. I mean, think about it. You're driving down the road, and you're on the interstate. And you know when you're driving down the interstate, and you get to that point in the middle of a long day's drive, you're hungry, you're starting to get hungry, and of course, dad or mom are saying to the kids, sure, we can, you know, it's always dad, I shouldn't say mom, it's always dad, we can make it four more exits. You know, and by then the kids are fighting and angry at each other. They're so hungry and everybody's starving. And you see about, you know, about two miles from the exit, you see that sign that has the fork and the spoon that means that at the next exit there's a restaurant. Everybody's spirits lift. Everybody gets hope. Everybody is encouraged. We can make it. Two more miles and there's a restaurant. In some ways that's what the bread and and the cup are like. It's pointing to us reality. It's pointing to something that's real, that will satisfy your hunger and your need. I mean, how, have you ever had that experience? I don't think I have, but I can imagine easily having that experience with a bunch of kids in the car, and you pull off the exit, and you get there, and you go to where the restaurant's supposed to be, and it's all boarded up, it's out of business. Could you imagine how crushing that would be? But Jesus says, When you receive the bread and the cup as signs of who I am and what I've done for you, of the spiritual nourishment that comes from feeding upon me, when you receive those signs rightly, you will be fed. You will be strengthened. You will draw closer to Christ. That's what we mean when we call the Lord's Supper a means of grace. Just like when you read the Word of God, and hear it by faith, and receive it humbly by faith, the promise is you will grow in your faith. And that's what the Lord's Supper does for the believer when you come rightly. It does feed you. That's Christ's promise. 
that he will feed you himself. He will make you stronger. He will sustain your life. He says, do this in remembrance of me. It's not about what we are doing for the Lord. It's what he's done for us already at the cross, where he accomplished all that our salvation needs once for all. It's about what he's doing now by being spiritually present as the host of the Lord's Supper, feeding us in the moment today, making us stronger. But it's also pointing to the future. And that's the third point that Paul is making in this passage, is that when we rightly observe the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper strengthens our hope. Our hope. He says in verse, Paul says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Two important phrases there. We proclaim the Lord's death by receiving the Lord's Supper in faith the right way. It's a proclamation of the gospel. It is the visual aid for the preaching of the gospel. That's why in our churches you tend not to see much in the way of big TV screens and CGI and special effects and smoke bombs. and You know, you don't see all of that flashy stuff in our worship services you might see elsewhere because we don't want to detract from the visual aid that Christ gave to the church, which is the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's hard, very hard for what we do in the Lord's Supper to compete with a lot of splashy te- you know, technology. But that's the thing. The demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is to accompany the preaching of the gospel is the Lord's Supper. Jesus said that the cup represented the blood of the new covenant. That's the new covenant that Jeremiah promised. That when the Messiah came, he would bring once for all complete and final redemption. That we would have forgiveness, complete forgiveness for sin. And that he would give his Holy Spirit in a far greater measure so that we would know the Lord far more deeply. And we would be able to walk in his ways because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God at work within us. That's what the new covenant was about. And Jesus says it's here. And as you take the Lord's Supper rightly, you gain that hope, that strength. But notice that our, as great as new covenant faith is, and the new covenant community of God is, it's not what we will be. Our deliverance is not complete. Our salvation, everything that needs to be done to accomplish our salvation was done at the cross and in the resurrection. But the work of salvation and applying it to us is not complete, and we look to that day. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples when he observed that first Lord's Supper, he said, Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Even Jesus, when he took the Lord's Supper the first time with his disciples, he said, I've got my focus on my return. When I'm able to eat and drink and feast with you in the new heavens and the new earth, when sin and death and suffering has been put away once and for all. Remember what the prophet Jeremiah, if you know the story, when Jeremiah, he was sent as a prophet to tell of the coming Babylonians who would come to bring judgment upon the people of God and to destroy Jerusalem and to carry God's people away into exile and slavery in Babylon. That was his message. And as the Babylonians were knocking on the door of Jerusalem, about to come in and decimate it, and and Jeremiah had been given a word from the Lord, it was going to happen. There was no two two ways about it. It Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. God's people would be taken into captivity. Do you know what the Lord told Jeremiah to do? 
buy property in Jerusalem. Buy a field, buy some property. And the message to God's people was, God will redeem his people. God will deliver his people. God will send his people back. There is hope. That's what the Lord's Supper is in many ways. It's a foretaste of the fullness of our salvation. And when we celebrate it rightly, it strengthens our hope. And that's the hope you need to get yourself out of bed in the morning and live for Christ another day. To pursue your calling, no matter how difficult your calling may be, no matter how much suffering you may have to go through, it's that hope that what the Lord's Supper is pointing to is that future reality that all will be made perfect and we will be with our Creator just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Before the first sin of eating, we will have the joy of eating in His presence for all eternity. Well, I've talked a lot about taking the Lord's Supper rightly. Let me take just a few moments as I close to talk about what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper rightly. Well, Paul talks about that at the end of this passage. Beginning in verse 27, he talks about coming to the table with discernment. And he defines what he means by discernment. He He says, you need to examine yourselves as you come to the table. Why are you coming and what are you looking for and what are you focused upon? as you come to the Lord's table. Obviously, the Corinthians had it all wrong. It was all about this world. It was all about their physical appetites. It was all about exalting themselves and putting others down. So obviously, they had it all completely backwards as they were coming to the Lord's table. Well, what's the opposite then? What's the right way to come to the Lord's table? Well, Paul says we need to discern the body of Christ in verse 29. And scholars, commentators have been divided for a long time about what does he mean by the body there. There's two possibilities. If you look at the immediate context, back in verse 27, he's talking about the body and blood of the Lord, that, the, the body of Christ that was sacrificed on the cross, the blood that was shed that provided our salvation. That's the body that he's referring to in the immediate context. So in other words, if you're discerning the body of Christ as you come to the Lord's table, and they think that's probably as short for the body and the blood, if, if, those who take that interpretation, then you need to make sure that you're really trusting in Christ's atoning death on the cross as you come to the table, that you really believe the gospel, that that's where your hope lies, not in anything you have done, but all that Christ has done for you. That's what it means to discern the body. Second possibility is that the body there refers to the broader context, not the immediate context, but the broader context where Paul is talking about how there's divisions among the body of Christ, the church. The metaphor, the body of Christ is a metaphor referring to the church and that there was division. And even if you go into the future, a couple of chapters down the road, he's going to talk a lot about what it means to be the body of Christ. So it's possible that Paul is referring to discerning the unity of the body in the gospel and the basis of the body being called to Christ through the gospel. And so it's still gospel-centered, but the focus is on the horizontal fellowship. I think he probably means both. I think he probably used the term because he understood that the primary focus may be on discerning that the body and the blood, that that the cup and the bread are signs of the body and blood of Christ broken on the cross, but that that fellowship with Christ produces a deep fellowship with one another. All this is to say that you need to prepare to come to the Lord's table. To the Corinthians, the meal had become a meaningless ritual, a good work, something that they did just to check off that box and get on with their feasting and the rest of their life. And they were dishonoring Christ and his sacrifice. And so Paul says, God has therefore sent a judgment. And 
I hope you're shocked by what the judgment was because he says, many of you in the Corinthian church have gotten sick and some of you even died. Now, I imagine that the Lord is just as angry when he looks at the, the way in which many people come to the Lord's table in churches these days as he was with the Corinthians because the same sort of abuses are still going on. But this was a different age. This was the age of the apostles. This was a time when the apostles were given a direct revelation from God where God could communicate directly to his people through, a, through an apostle. And remember Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck, struck dead because they lied about a piece of property they were giving to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit and so God struck them dead. God doesn't typically judge people in churches when they abuse the means of grace or when they come in the wrong way to worship. He doesn't deal that way with his church any longer. But Paul's message is still at the root of it very true. We need to come rightly to the table. We need to not take the Lord's Supper lightly. We need to not take it thoughtlessly. We need to make sure that we're discerning the body and blood of Christ and the body of Christ as the church as we come to the Lord's table. We need to come in faith. We need to come recognizing we have empty hands and nothing, nothing to offer. And the purpose, there's a purpose in the Lord's Supper that this speaks to that I think we sometimes miss out on, is it's meant to be a heart monitor, a spiritual heart monitor for us, to check where we are with the Lord. Where are we in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and where are we in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well over a decade ago, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure. And by God's grace, I'm very thankful that I've been able to keep it very well under control with medicine and exercise. I can't say the food you're supposed to eat right, but I don't do that, so I can't list that. That's the one area I fall short in. But, but even though it's well under control, I have to check it regularly. I have to stay on top of it. I have to keep going and put sticking my arm in that thing that squeezes the life out of your arm to tell you what your blood pressure is, to know whether I'm okay or not. And in many ways, I really feel like that's what the Lord's Supper, that's part of the Lord's Supper's purpose, is to give us a regular, I think we probably should, should observe it more than we do, to be quite honest with you. Because it's meant to be a regular check upon our heart. Where do we stand with the Lord? Where do we stand with the Lord's people? Is there unconfessed sin? that is harming my relationship with the Lord? Is there a broken relationship in my life with a brother and sister in Christ that I've not done all I can do to be reconciled? It's meant to be a regular time to say, I'm welcome at the table. The gospel is the whole basis of my invitation. It's all about what Christ has done. But I need to come and observe it rightly. I need to honor the meaning of the table. This needs to be about the gospel and its effect on my relationships in my life with the Lord and with each other. And if it's not that, then I need to leave my gift at the altar, as Jesus would say, and go and make things right. But having said that, and I do strongly b believe and teach that there needs to be preparation to come to the Lord's table so that you're sure you come rightly, I don't want to make the mistake we often make of emphasizing the warning so strongly that we discourage people who should and need to be at the table from coming. Because the Lord's table is for broken sinners like you and me. The Lord's table is for people who doubt about the truth of the scriptures or the truth of the gospel or the truths about Jesus Christ. It's for people who are doubting and need their faith to be strengthened. It's for people that are battling temptations with sin and, and even failing and falling in sin that need to be renewed in the grace of Christ and put back up on their spiritual feet again. That's what the table is for. 
It's not about getting cleaned up so you can come to the table. It's about coming to the table to be renewed in the grace of Christ and restored in your relationship with him. Jesus said, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The next time we serve the Lord's Supper, in a couple weeks, I wish we could serve it right now, but in a couple weeks when we serve the Lord's Supper, I want you to look at that little tiny two centimeter by two centimeter chunk of bread and that little tiny cup of about a 0.25 ounce of wine or grape juice and thank the Lord for welcoming you to the Lord's table by his grace because of the atoning blood of Christ. But I want you to think, boy, not much of a feast, is it? Because this is not what it's about. This is a sign pointing us to the real feast that will come when our Lord Jesus Christ returns in all the glories of heaven and turns this broken, fallen, dark, corrupted world into the new heavens and the new earth. And we will fellowship with our Lord for eternity in that beauty and glory. And we will never, ever have a need, a hunger, or a thirst again. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning as we've reflected on Paul's words. We're so thankful for the gift of the Lord's Supper. It has been so many times in our lives a means of grace to us. Lord, I pray that as we prepare to come to the Lord's table the next time, I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy and humility, full of faith, trust in Christ, and that we would be able to have that minor feast that looks forward to the major feast to come. And Lord, just thank you for our relationship with Christ and the relationship that Christ gives us with our brothers and sisters here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.